I am really passionate about getting young people involved in science and really seeing what science is like and how exciting and creative it can be. Because sometimes I think that we believe that science versus the arts and humanities belong in two different sections and you're either that or the other. But actually, there's so much creativity in science and there's so much that science can learn from creative pursuits. And so I'm really passionate about trying to transmit that to younger people who might not be sure if what they learn in the classroom is for them. But actually, it's a much bigger world out there, like your daughter can see when she's playing in the garden. And actually, that kind of curiosity and naivety is exactly the scientific spirit that we need in science today. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Dr Lior Zimmergrod is a junior research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Her research combines methods from experimental psychology, cognitive science and neuroscience to investigate the psychology of ideological adherence and group identity formation. In particular, she is interested in investigating cognitive characteristics that might act as vulnerability factors for radicalisation and ideologically motivated behaviour. She holds a BA in Psychological and Behavioural Sciences from the University of Cambridge and has published work on the neuroscience of agency, creativity and hallucinations. Lior has also conducted research at Stanford University, Harvard University and University College London. Lior went on to complete her PhD at Cambridge with her doctoral research exploring the psychological processes underpinning political, religious and nationalistic beliefs. For the academic year 2020 to 2021, Lior will hold the Gretti Murdahl Junior Chair in Brain, Culture and Society at the Paris Institute for Advanced Study. With numerous other accolades to her name, Lior was listed on Forbes's 30 Under 30 in the Science and Healthcare category, awarded the ESCAN 2020 Young Investigator Award by the European Society for Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience, as well as the Glushko Dissertation Prize in Cognitive Science by the Cognitive Science Society. Lior is passionate about encouraging young people to pursue STEM and founded the Cambridge Cognitive Science Research Assistantship Scheme to offer research experience and mentoring to young people interested in a scientific approach to the human mind. Her research has been featured in The Guardian, Time, New Scientist, Financial Times, LSE British Politics and Policy, The Times and many other international outlets. Lior was the recipient of the Women of the Future Award 2020 in the science category. I moved around quite a bit growing up and I think that when you have a lot of change in your life and you grow up in quite an international and multicultural kind of environment, 
I guess you learn not to take anything for granted. You learn that everything is really malleable and can easily change. And that actually there are a lot of opportunities that come your way if you're open to them. So we moved around a lot and I was very grateful for that. It's not something that's for everyone, but I had a wonderful time growing up that way. And where are you from? Where were your family based when you were small? Again, this is one of those things where we moved around so much um, that it's almost hard to pin down sometimes when people ask, so where is home? That's mm. a little bit of a difficult question. Now we are all based in the UK and really happy to be here and grateful to be able to have a family life in the UK. So that's, that's where we're based now, but we've moved around a lot. Um, what were you like at school? Were you particularly dedicated, hardworking, or did you you know, just enjoy all of it? Were you a bit of a jack of all trades? What was that like for you? I think it depends who you ask. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think I really enjoyed, um, I had a great school in high school that was really motivating and really inspiring and actually really focused on promoting creative thinking and promoting thinking that's interdisciplinary. So I loved that. And I think that one of the things that I learned reasonably quickly is actually the science that we have in the classroom is so different to the science that you practice later when you become a researcher and so knowing that that a difference is important because sometimes I think students who think that okay the science the experiments that we run here are what science really is in the world outside can leave science too early because actually it can answer all these really fascinating questions So I think that I was really open to understanding that different disciplines are not always the same as they are in school. And you're really passionate now, aren't you, about encouraging younger people to pursue STEM. What was it that sparked your interest? What was it for you? Was it a person or a moment or just... You know, I know, like I have a young daughter and she likes looking at flowers and ants and things like that. So was it something like that? Was it organic or did someone inspire you? I think it was fairly organic. And I think that when I look back, you know, sometimes we like to construct these narratives of exactly how all the pieces fell into place. But often it really is a series of experiences and people who give you opportunities, kind of take a chance on you. And that makes a big difference in opening up opportunities for you as you go along. I am really passionate about getting young people involved in science and really seeing what science is like and how exciting and creative it can be. Because sometimes I think that we believe that science versus the arts and humanities belong in two different sections and you're either that or the other. But actually, there's so much creativity in science and there's so much that science can learn from creative pursuits. And so I'm really passionate about trying to transmit that to younger people who Mm. might not be sure if what they learn in the classroom is for them but actually it's a much bigger world out there like your daughter can see when she's playing in the garden and actually that kind of curiosity and naivety is exactly the scientific spirit that we need in science today. And you hold a BA in psychological and behavioral sciences from Cambridge and looking through your CV it's incredible there's so much that you have studied and done and researched and invested your time in what made you do that what made you go down the behavioral route and was there again was there something you found as you kind of 
narrowed down the trajectory you were on, that that was where your interest lay? Did you identify that fairly early on? I think I was lucky in that I did identify that fairly early on. I knew that I was passionate about the brain in general, and I was excited about exploring different avenues and getting involved in research pretty early. And it's not that the research that I did early on is the same research that I'm doing now, but all those little pieces added together to giving me an appreciation for how complex the human brain is mm. and how complex behavior is. And so it really was a passion for understanding the relationship between our brain, this biological organ that we're all walking around with, and the complexity of our behavior, and then the complexities of our social and political lives, which is the interface I'm working on now. And the media often calls on you to discuss the more cognitive characteristics around radicalization and ideologically motivated behavior, which we've obviously seen a lot of in recent history. I mean, that's not, that's not easy, is it, to digest and disseminate? And obviously trying to put it into probably layman's terms from what your studies involve. Do you find that a challenge or is it something that you quite embrace and enjoy? I think it's both. It's, it's an enjoyable challenge, but it does feel like when you're called on as an expert in a topic that's really sensitive, that's more sensitive than many other topics in science can be, that you want to be really careful. You want to be really careful that your research is understood properly, that what you're communicating is sensitive and true to the science, and also that you're not stigmatizing any group because that's really important and really a slippery slope that can happen in this field. So it's definitely a challenge every time. <laughs> and the political situation around us keeps changing. So you have to respond to new questions, new political questions that are on everyone's minds. But it is also a fun part. So it's fun, but also a challenging part of being a scientist that I guess they don't teach you at school, right? They don't tell you that when you're a researcher and you have something that a lot of people are interested in, that you will have to think not only about how to do that science in a systematic and rigorous way, you'll also have to think about how it interfaces with the wider world and how you're going to communicate that. And the fact that, especially when you're studying minds, those minds are going to come back and talk to you <laughs> and they're going <laughs> to tell you their opinions about your research. So it's a little different when you're studying minds and attitudes because they respond back, unlike leaves and ants and flowers <laughs> <laughs> that's quite fascinating actually like what you just mentioned there is that everybody's different and you know people's feelings and interpretations and their outlooks can entirely vary and it's very subjective again like how, how do you approach that do you obviously you must have to be very patient and listen and understand and digest again but that just sounds like it's a bit of a minefield to me how do you do it it is a little bit of a maze because you want to acknowledge people's subjectivities and their subjective interpretations of the world. At the same time, a lot of my research studies those things. So I study uh, how people's ideologies are shaped by their minds and shape their minds in return. And so it is really challenging. And one of the things that I try to do is to find ways to make sure that the evidence I'm communicating is really rooted in the science. So it's not rooted in my own political ideas. I really try to put those aside because when we're scientists of something that's really subjective, 
you want to make sure that it's still rigorous and that you're using methods and communication tools that highlight what is science and what's the kind of interpretation or subjective side of it. So finding ways to disentangle the two is something that I work on on a daily basis. I can imagine it must be really hard to stay impartial too, particularly with some of the radicalization and the behaviors around that. That must be a real challenge for you. It is really challenging. And it's also what makes this really interesting and engaging and captivating because you continuously have to reflect back on where your own worldviews lie and how to make sure that you are really clear about what's your own opinion and what is the kind of evidence. And I hope, I mean, I, I study dogmatic thinking a lot and I hope that through studying it, it also gives a guide on how to become the least dogmatic versions of ourselves that we can be. So I hope that it's a science that also reflects back and teaches us things. And you're speaking to me from Paris now. You've managed to get over there in the midst of a pandemic. So where are you now? What are you doing? And where are you in your career? What are you working on? So I finished my PhD a couple of years ago, and I was really lucky to get this research fellowship at Cambridge again. Uh, they keep me, they keep me hooked. <laughs> um, right now, I'm on a visiting fellowship at the Paris Institute for Advanced Study, which is a wonderful place that invites international fellows to do their research in a way that's in a new setting with new ideas, and especially to try to think about, in my case, the interface between the neurosciences and the social sciences. And so it's an exciting time to be writing about these ideas because this field is really at its infancy. And so I'm here developing my research on that, but soon I'll be in Cambridge and continuing to really try to develop a rigorous research program that is hopefully informative to scientists, but also speaks to policymakers and to the public as they try to navigate the complex arena of social ideologies. Forgive my ignorance, this might be a really obvious question. So the end of your fellowship, the culminating thesis or however you present your findings and what you've learned, who is that intended for? Like you said there, like policymakers, government bodies, people like that. Is, that. is that who you're aiming all of this at? Yeah, it is aimed. Hopefully it's a body of knowledge that's being built in a cumulative way because science is always cumulative and tentative in a way. And I'm really excited about engaging both with scientists on these questions and basically continuing to publish empirical research and theoretical research that tries to situate the brain in its political habitat. So to think about what features of our brains are involved in the process of voting or what is involved when people are dragged into toxic ideologies and how do we unravel that kind of cycle back. And so I think this is the kind of research that speaks to everyone, whether you're a biologist or a sociologist or just a private citizen really fascinated by why we think the way we do about the political world. And so basically as a scientist, you're just continually building up that line of inquiry. So there isn't an exact end. It's about continuing to cultivate this body of knowledge and hoping that people read it and enjoy it or learn something from it. And we talk about, well, we, we talk a lot about role models and mentors, and it's really, clearly it's really important and may, maybe never more so within the science, tech, engineering, mathematics world. 
who played that position in your life? Who are your role models or mentors or people that you've looked towards or, or still involved and are helping guide you through your career? It's a complicated question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that we all have these private role models that don't even need to be in our field, you know, that just teach us those values of passion and authenticity and taking responsibility and, and really thinking of your life in a creative way, in a way that you're really building something out of your life that you are excited about, regardless of what the outside world will say. Hopefully they'll agree, but even if not, being authentic and open-minded is hugely important. I've been lucky to have a family that's been incredibly supportive of that, having academic mentors who have continuously had this bizarre belief in my abilities um, that has allowed me to believe in myself and to push my science in ways that maybe seemed a little crazy at the time, but have paid off. So I think a lot of our risk-taking in our career and in our education is often motivated by a range of different role models. And I hope that people continue to have more and more role models, whether those are people that they know, whether people who push them from the side or cheer them on, or whether those are people that we might not know, but we might read their work or their thoughts and be really inspired by them. So when I think about my role models, I think they range from the family and friends that have been there alongside but also maybe historical figures or writers who have been hugely inspirational in the way in which they've cultivated their thinking. So I don't have a singular answer to that, but it's a, it's a range and I'm grateful for that. And you've achieved so much already. You were listed on the Forbes 30 under 30 in the science and healthcare category. You were awarded the ESCAN Young Investigator Award by the European Society for Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience. You were also awarded the Grishko Dissertation Prize in Cognitive Science by the Cognitive Science Society. I'm talking to you because you've won a Woman of the Future Award. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on. It really, really does. But Across all the work that you've done, is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? I think that what's humbling about these awards is that they recognize something in your work that is useful or interesting or inspiring. I think there are two things from the last year or two that I've been most excited about. One was the opportunity to edit what's called a special issue, which is like a journal for the Royal Society on my field, which is political neuroscience. So that was basically the opportunity to bring together world experts and create the journal that is completely dedicated to the most cutting edge state of the art research on the intersection between politics and the brain. And that was a hugely exciting and inspiring process of editing a journal and really interacting with all these experts in the field and thinking deeply about what kind of research do we need to do to really unpack these questions about what ideologies do to minds. And so being able to do that over the past year and then have that physical copy of a journal that's open access so anybody can read is really great. It's just a wonderful way to contribute to the growing body of knowledge. The other wonderful aspect of this year that I've been proud of and excited by is starting up this research assistantship scheme 
that allows young people to get involved in real world research, basically when they're still in high school, so 16 to 19 year olds. And that has been so much fun <laughs> in addition <laughs> to being very difficult and hard and challenging and basically being able to mentor these young students. We often in science, we say early career for anybody who is within the first 10 years of their PhD. So those are still people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, but being able to work with teenagers who are still at that decision-making phase and showing them what they can learn and how actually accessible data science and science can be if someone takes the time to show them, that's been hugely inspiring to see and to see their trajectories after doing this mentorship program and seeing where they've ended up and we've kept in contact. And a lot of them have been reaching out saying how helpful they found the scheme. So that has been something that I've been really excited by. And I'm continuously thinking about how to expand that and develop that beyond just the group that I mentored. Do you think political neuroscience isn't really a choice that most people who are studying have considered or, you know, what you're talking about maybe opens up those options, but it's not necessarily something, you know, when you're selecting what you do at uni or looking for a particular subject matter or genre, it doesn't, or not that I've seen, well, I'm obviously a bit older than you, but like maybe it's, it should be, and it should be more prevalent. And I can, I can imagine you're probably at the forefront of the work in this area. And is it something you're keen to open up and become expanded within academia? Completely. And it is a field that on one hand is still really early stages. I'd say that it's only been the last five to 10 years during which scientists have really tried to grapple with how do we use the methods of brain sciences to understand politics. But even from the beginnings of outreach that we've done, some of the lectures I've given students and some of the interests that I've gotten from students all over the world who are really keen to work on it, suggest so that there really is something that has touched a lot of people's minds about what this science could be. So I'm definitely interested in developing it further, helping it mature, because it's still a bit of a baby science. And I'm excited to see where it can go and how it can interface with political science and policy and biology. And that's, like you said, a bit of an untraditional yes. uh, nexus, but I think it has a lot of potential. So I'm excited to be there for that ride. It sounds fascinating. Sounds utterly fascinating. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future program and what inspired you to get involved? So I was incredibly lucky. They actually reached out to me initially, and I have no idea how they found me, but they did. And then I learned more about the program and it has been so inspiring and so wonderful to meet so many of the women that it brings together and has really motivated me to continue and developing the kind of schemes and programs to getting young women and young people into science, because I see how important it is to pay these things forward and to continue to be really actively engaged. It's amazing how one conversation, one talk can actually really inspire someone to go into a field or to try something out that they just didn't know existed before. So I think the Women of the Future program is fantastic and I'm so excited about the work that it does all over the world. I have some quick fire questions just to finish. So here we go. What would you describe as your greatest success? Oh no. 
put you I've in the already, spot. I've already failed at the first question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's hard because one would hope that success is a quantifiable thing, but I think staying true to yourself, being authentic, staying passionate and studying the things that really you're, you're excited about is almost what I would put in that category. And your greatest failure? That is so hard. <laughs> because, because I think that's a really difficult question because on a personal level, we're constantly dealing with rejections in the scientific world, especially. We deal with so many of these kinds of mini failures that we feel might be big at the moment, but in retrospect, actually are not that important at all because life is long. And, yeah, um, and I think also failing sometimes presents a better option or puts you on a different path that you hadn't considered and it can all work out much better than you ever anticipated. Completely, completely. So it's hard because failures are often new opportunities for freedom and for taking responsibility and trying new paths and carving your way. So I don't know. Uh, and that's not to say that I haven't had many failures. It's to say that it's hard to pinpoint a single moment. <laughs> <laughs> the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I think that means being really genuinely invested in another person's capacity to flourish. So genuinely thinking about what you can offer another person that will push them to greater heights. And I think that is what the Women of the Future program really exemplifies and really symbolizes how, and especially women in a world that is not really built for them, <laughs> can help pull each other up and push each other forward, or just hold their hands along the way, right? Sometimes we use these forceful language and it doesn't have to be about force. I think it's exactly that kindness and compassion is to let each person carve their own way, but also giving them that freedom and that responsibility to do so in the way that feels most healthy and inspiring to them. Is there anything that scares you? I'm liking these long pauses. <laughs> <laughs> Really making you think. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't know if I hope that you'll take them out or, yeah. or I will. Or, I'll, take, I'll take some. <laughs> great, yeah. <laughs> because um, because these are great and really thought provoking questions, and so of course there are many things that can scare you, and I think that can be good. I think it can be good to be scared by things because it means that you have grasped the magnitude of the situation. If you are not scared, sometimes that means that you don't understand the full complexity of how your life is panning out. So I think if I'm scared of anything, it's mostly to forget the importance of freedom and responsibility and authenticity and passion and to let other people dictate my way instead of creating it by myself because it's really easy to succumb to all the pressures and all the expectations and all the things that people are telling you that you should be doing and everybody has their own opinion but they really want to tell you <laughs> so I think that I'm scared of losing that way but I'm hoping that that fear will stop me from losing my own way so I hope that fear is an adaptive thing in this case. What's left on your to-do list? I think I'm definitely very excited about the prospect of expanding 
a kind of scheme that allows young people to be involved in research early on. I just think that that just has such a transformative impact on people's lives. I mean, from a neuroscientific point of view, we know how plastic human brains are in their adolescence. And I think it's such an amazing opportunity to be able to make science accessible to people and communities which don't necessarily have those things immediately in front of them, but where there is so much potential for so much creativity and imagination and innovation. And so I think that's one of the big things I see on my to-do list, which is not necessarily a scientific thing. I also have scientific hopes, but I am really excited about the prospect of opening up science in this way. When I was looking through your CV and all your accolades and everything you've done, I was like, I hope she has time to just go for a coffee, <laughs> meet friends or go for a run or a swim or whatever it is that you do to keep yourself mentally and physically well. So please tell me you've got plans in that respect too, right? I have a lot of plans good, and I'm currently good. in Paris, constantly in cafes, I promise. Oh, there we are. <laughs> and all the pastries, right? Oh, Best yes. pastries in the world. Those are things I'm scared of. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. And like I say, with your crazy, crazy schedule, I'm just delighted that we managed to find time to speak to you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.